right. Welcome, everyone. This is another episode of That Record Got Me. Hi, I am your host, Rob Elba. It is great having you all here with me. It is a lovely Thursday night instead of a Wednesday. We moved it a little, but whenever you listen to it is whenever you listen to it. I'm just going to say I'm super excited for this show because as many people, longtime listeners of the show and especially patrons of the show know, when I started this uh, almost five years ago, I had myself a, a master list of albums that I, I would want to talk about. And it ended up we we did, uh, at first it was just me and Barry and we would uh, alternate picking our own records, but it, very soon it got into Guess and Guess would pick the record. And then they were on my list, but about one third of my list is done, but this is an album uh, that we are going to discuss that was definitely on that list, and that was one of the first ones I put on that list. So I'm really excited to introduce uh, our guest, returning guest. He is the VP of Communications and Public Affairs at Google. Some of you may have heard of that. Also a super fan of the Oregon Ducks football team, which I know nothing about. And uh, former music journalist, current music fan, right? Is that fair to say, Corey? That is completely fair to say. And up until a year ago, it was also... DJing at a station here uh, in San Francisco, too. That was my little pandemic hobby. So, oh, that's yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So welcome to the show, returning guest, Corey Dubrowa. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you, Rob. It is delightful to be uh, back here again. And I, and I feel like, first of all, Rob, when, uh, when you and I were going back and forth about like what this episode was going to be, uh, just for full transparency for your listeners, I, I think we started talking about television's marquee moon, which I, I couldn't believe somebody hadn't done. I'm booked through next year, but still no one has picked that album. So you could still, maybe when you return again in like a year or so, you still may be able to do that, Corey. It's like a fantasy football draft, Rob. I'm just moving Marquee Moon like back to the fourth or fifth round. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but I was thinking about like, what are the, like, uh, what are the things that Marquee Moon has inspired or sort of like, you know, if it's the touchstone, what are the bands that are very clearly kind of in awe of what uh, television was doing? And that's when I came back to you with, with Echo and the Bunnymen and the record that we're going to talk about. I couldn't believe, first of all, that nobody had done any Echo and the Bunnymen record, much less the one we're going to talk about. And right. so uh, I, I'm so excited to be here because I feel like this is a band whose first four records sort of captured the the high point of 80s post-punk. And, and this one, the one we're going to talk about, to me, was just sort of like the top of the mountain, the top of Bunnymen Mountain. So... Agreed. I'm, I'm like, I'm on exactly the same page with you. And I'm guessing, I think we've discussed before, we're around the same age, you know, came up around the same age. And I just, I, I don't know, like I told Corey, uh, you're, by the way, Corey's previous episode, uh, Sid Barrett, Madcap Laughs, which Corey, I don't know if I've ever told you, but that's a, that episode is a really uh, strong episode. Like it did really well. And people always talk to me uh, specifically about, you know, episodes they listen to. And a lot of people mention that episode. A lot of people love that episode. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I wish as many people loved Sid's records. <laughs> maybe that'll, maybe that'll help spur some. <laughs> well, this, as far as in, in our little world, in the That Record Got Me I podcast world, uh, many do. Many more do than in the general public. But uh, yeah, it's, I love uh, that. it's very uh, strong. And yeah, so you're a musician and you had been, you were playing in bands in, in high school and college or just college? High school and college. And, you know, like like 
the eighties itself, you know, I sort of, uh, changed tack from the kinds of, uh, bands or music, uh, that I might've been making early in the eighties when I was in high school, you know, where ACDC would have been on the list of songs that were simple enough to, to make a run at right to hearing echo and the Bunnymen for the first time. And it just completely reoriented my whole way of thinking about how you play guitar. I actually read a review, Rob, I was thinking about how I came to this record in the first place. And, uh, I was a subscriber to Cream Magazine. I don't know if you remember that or if of that course. was part of your uh, diet. Yeah, Cream, your, absolutely, yeah. Your diet back then. But there was a there was a monumental review, like a four-in-one review, where Echo and the Bunnymen's Crocodiles, um, their Liverpool frenemies, the teardrop explodes. There was a record called Kilimanjaro that came out at the same time. U2's record Boy and Joy Division's Closer. All those records came out within like three months of one another and Cream stitched them all together into one review. And the reviewer was so great at describing how my friend Britt Daniel from Spoon likes to describe what Spoon does is all guitars, no Clapton. Ah, <laughs> that's great. I love that. <laughs> no, no wanky noodling, no blues borrowing, no bullshit. Just, you know, like it, it's an instrument for a different way of channeling sound. And those four records were just so monumental that like i quit the band i was in i started up another one you know we were playing exclusively things like echo and the velvets and the doors and you know all these things that sort of were in the same zone as one another and uh so so for sure uh, you know will Sargent, the guitar player from echo and the bunny completely changed or reoriented how i thought about guitar music uh, yeah yeah, and that's uh, yeah. I'm I'm really the the same with me because yeah, that that's what it was. I mean, I was into yeah. I mean, obviously, for at first I was I had an older sister, so I listened to her stuff, Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, things like that. But then when I got into my own, I was into punk and punk bands. But yeah, once I started getting into like uh, Joy Division, Echo and the Bunnymen, Gang of Four, yeah, it sort of opened it up. Where yeah, like you said, guitar bands, but with guitar used a completely different way. And then once you got to this, Ocean Rain just completely different and you know it, it's funny i'm glad you mentioned a good review because in looking back i was amazed to see that it wasn't necessarily that well re- reviewed all across the board and i found a particularly horrible review by park Puderball. Oh, um yeah rolling stone Roll- of, of course rolling stone because whenever i want to find a really shitty review it's in rolling stone uh he gave For the sure. album two out of five stars and described it as too often a monochromatic dirge of banal existential imagery cloaked around a mere skeleton of a musical idea. Yes, I mean... How it, fucking... But how... I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, first of all, that's a ridiculous way to describe this record, but it, it feels like somebody's sort of intentionally trying to pick a fight or to yeah, find... Yeah, a just way. trying to shit on uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. Maybe Ian McCulloch stole his girlfriend at some point or something, you know? It sounds very Dude, personal. <laughs> entirely likely actually but you know pewterbaugh wasn't alone i actually read another review in new musical express nme that you know was was about the same time would have been 84 and and i'll just sort of read you a line everything in ocean rain has been designed uh to buttress the notion of this group's importance And then goes on to kind of like take them apart for like they're pretentious, they're clearly over their skis, they're beyond their station, uh, they're, you know, people trying to do Shakespeare in, in a punk world that just doesn't work. Um, so it is funny how retrospectively, you know, you look at all music and 
50 other reviews that are out there online about Ocean Rain. And, you know, it's the band's high point. They were at a creative peak. This is the Bunnymen at their best. You know, this is literally the, the Mount Kilimanjaro of Bunnyland. Like, right. I, I sense at the time, uh, Rob, that to your point, the reviews were probably uh, a little bit more mixed. And, you know, when I think about it, to me, there are uh, a couple of things with the Bunnymen that I always think about or you kind of have to remember or go back to. And and I don't know if they had any influence on the way people were writing reviews. But the, the first of those things is that there was a group that existed for six weeks in 1977 called the Crucial Three. And the Crucial Three were Ian McCulloch, singer of the Bunnymen, Julian Cope, singer of the Teardrop Explodes, and Pete Wiley, singer of a, a group called Wah Heat. And oh, ended up right, having lots right. Of, I, 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 amazing Wah. There were lots of permutations of that. And uh, and so, you know, they that three people in Liverpool, those three people never played a gig, never really did anything outside of the, the bedroom or the basement. And yet they wrote this song, read it in books, that ended up being on both Echo's debut, Teardrop's debut, and it kind of kick-started this notion of Liverpool as a creative center. You said you couldn't find anyone to love you. I said this morning a life in a broken heart did it console you. I've seen it in your eyes and I've read it in books. Who wants Which, you know, I'm not sure since the Beatles that anybody would have pointed at this, you know, kind of icky port city. It definitely had a uh, a reputation as being like a creative center. And, you know, you think about it, and that's the second thing you think about is Liverpool. What do you think about when you think about Liverpool? You think about the Beatles. That's all most, you know, most anybody, aside from people who, like, visited there or lived there, that's that's pretty much what they know uh, about Liverpool. And yet Eric's Club, uh, which is weirdly right across the street from the cavern, or where the cavern used to be in Liverpool, which is, of course, where the Beatles played lots of their early Liverpool gigs. Um, Eric's Club was the center of this entire creative universe, right? Like, there were all these different bands that... So Echo and the Bunnymen, the Turn Up Explodes, Frankie Goes to Hollywood came from there, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, OMD were from there, Wild Swans, Dead or Alive, Pete Burns, oh, he right, was from there. Right. Uh, big in Japan, KLF, you know, there were all of these people sort of swimming around in this creative universe. And, uh, you know, Liverpool's a port city, right? Like, it has a... A history that comes with being uh, a port city. So it, it has some sort of, well, I don't know, kind of dark characters hanging around in it. Uh, you know, it has uh, shipping is like a huge part, which, you know, when we talk about the record, I think we're going to talk a lot about water imagery and oh, the idea yeah. of how that factors in. I mean, clearly, even from the cover, you get the sense of, of what that means. But, you know, I, I can't get too far away from uh, Echo and the Bunnymen without thinking about, you know, Liverpool and Eric's and, and all of that. And then, of course, you know, finally, it's what we started this conversation about, which is the idea that um, Echo was sort of like anti-guitar athlete, right? Like Jimmy Page, guitar athlete, Jeff Beck, guitar athlete. Right, you right, know, right, right. Joe Perry, guitar athlete, like all these guys that, you know, and, and ultimately that led to people like Eddie Van Halen. And that is that is not at all what this record is about. And so it, I don't know, I, you talk about the reviews and how mixed they were, and it does make me think like, I wonder if people like Park Buterbaugh were just sort of reacting to the idea that like in 1983 or 84, Echo and the Bunnymen would have been one of the best live acts on the planet. You can go to YouTube 
And oh, find I saw them. Well, uh, did you see them? I saw them on this tour in Boston at the Boston Theater, I believe. I was trying to remember, but my memory's so bad. But I believe it was at the Boston Theater on the Ocean Rain tour, and it was yeah, one of the best uh, concert uh, bands in concert I've ever seen. It was just um, amazing. Oh, they're, they're phenomenal, and there's there's a full um, video on YouTube that that you can go up and find from uh, 1983. There was a gig that they played called, I think, um, Lay Down Thy Raincoat and Groove. And it was, was in London uh, at Albert Hall. And it is just a it is a two-hour powerhouse of a live band kind of at the peak of its powers. And this record, which we'll, we'll get into when we talk about it, like it represents a really different sound for Echo and the Bunnymen. It, it's more acoustic. Uh, it kind of got away from a lot of that more like Velvet Underground kind of thing that they had going on for the first, you know, three or four years of the band. Uh, so to me, this was a band at the peak of its powers, almost doing a Bartleby the Scribner, like I would prefer not to. It's almost like they turned their back on sure superstardom in some of the choices that they made. Although, you know, putting the one song that anybody knows from Echo and the Bunnymen, The Killing Moon, on this record, uh, you know, it, it probably teased people into thinking like it's possible. But uh, I, I see a band actively working against U2 style superstardom with this record. And that's why I love it so much. Yeah. And it's funny. In going back and reading some of these views, I'm thinking also, is it just me? Am I wrong? Did I like buy into this? And it really is cheesy because it's almost like they're saying, how dare this band like this rock band do this thing, bring in this orchestra like a 35 piece orchestra and, and do. But, uh, you know, because I always thought of this as as great an example of a rock band using orchestration to to like elevate their material into this like one a singularly cohesive musical piece because the album I've always thought this album is just of itself a piece of itself it's never I, I don't think I've ever just listened to songs on this album I've always listened if I'm gonna listen to Ocean Rain I'm gonna listen to the whole goddamn album you know because it's, oh, yeah. it's only I'm nine probably... songs but yep. is it just uh, you know because to me uh, I think of it as it should be up with like Dark Side of the Moon and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I've always think it should be up in that realm. But, you know, then I'm thinking, is it just me? Am I just crazy? Rob, it is not just, well, or maybe it's just us. Too, us. Yeah, right? you're saying it, just yeah. you saying it doesn't make it uh, not so. But uh, yeah, but that's one of the things I love. What I love about this record is how uh, committed they are to everything they did on it. All the the lush orchestra arrangements and the the weirdly the weird uh, lyrics that are e evocative, but weird. It was almost like they went all in, you know, with this dark and stormy like minute sea mood and the Middle Eastern motifs. They like they just went all into it. So I feel like it's something that you have to just buy into completely, or you're just going to say, "Oh, who do these guys think they are? What are they doing?" But it's one of these things where I feel like you just have to buy into it all and just enjoy it for what it is. I completely agree with you. And, you know, it, um, Ian McCulloch, the singer, you know, his nickname at the time would have been Mac the Mouth or the Liverpool Lip. You know, he was right. sort of given to ridiculous hyperbole in interviews. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, because they basically ended up marketing it as the greatest album ever made, right? <laughs> <laughs> greatest album ever made and you know the killing moon is the greatest song ever written i mean i don't know what it is with these northern bands you know you hear uh the verbs richard ashcroft saying similar things or oasis right. or whatever it must just be that sort of like you know liverpool versus everyone yeah, attitude yeah. That you, to kind of make it but um max thing at the time was that he was talking a lot about shakespeare in fact the songs from this album the killing moon's 
debut as a live song <laughs> came at Stratford on Avon at a gig that they played in, you know, essentially Shakespeare's hometown. And so you, to me, what I hear is sort of this really interesting tension caused between the twin impulses of McCulloch trying to have this very sort of artful, more meaningful, more important uh, set of things to say. And the fact is, is that all of his bandmates were very working class from Liverpool. And, you know, they, they right, had right, right. intentionally kind of like simple sound and even parts of Ocean Rain for having a 35 piece orchestra. Like there are songs with two chords on this record. That's it. That's right, all they got. Right, right. right. So, so I agree with you. They were completely all in. And um, I, I read somewhere, Rob, that uh, the, the guitar company Washburn had gifted them with these acoustic guitars before yes. in, in between records. So between Porcupine and this one, 1983's record and this one, they were already going down some kind of acoustic path. And I think their uh, their manager, a guy named Bill Drummond, who ended up, uh, he founded Zoo Records. He ended up in the KLF. Uh, he'd been in some other bands around Liverpool and he was managing Echo and the Bunnymen. I think he thought this is going to be their last record. <laughs> their fourth record. This is it. This is this is all she wrote for the Bunnymen. And so we're just going to pull out all the stops. We're going to have this you know, 35 piece orchestra. If you hated Days of Future Past by Moody Blues or you didn't like the first two Yes albums where they were backed by the London Symphony Orchestra or whatever it was like, you're probably not going to like this either because we're we're all in on the concept. But um, I'm really struck, Rob, like this is not you know how so many 80s albums are just kind of shitty sounding. They're kind of tinny oh yeah and the drums yeah. are right. too big and the guitars sound kind of thin and tweaky and the vocals are wrong and they just sound like an 80s record I, I swear to you ocean rain could have been recorded yesterday that's how fresh and non-80s it sounds to, to my ears even now having listened to it for the last several weeks Agree. I totally agree. And just before we get, we're going to start uh, with the first song. I remember, I so vividly remember buying this because I was already, I'm sure you were, but you were already a fan of them, right? You own their yeah. earlier records. Right. Me too. So I remember getting this and they had released Never Stop before this, the song Never Stop, which was a little, it had some strings on it and it definitely was a little different sound for them, right? That's where, and that's actually a great sort of segue from Porcupine, which was evidently difficult to record. The band had a lot of discord within the group, uh, disagreements about you know how the creative process was working, a, a lot of tension, and just this really dark sound. But there were songs like The Cutter and The Back of Love that you know had strings on them. The Back of Love in particular, I think, is where you start to get a sense of like, Hey, wait a minute, these guys are trying to do something. And so you get to never stop. And the the intro to never stop is cellos. Yep. It's 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 a rock band playing with cellos. And so you you really get the sense that like around late 83, early 84, they were turning a corner and never stop, which I think might have been a minor hit, like a club hit in the US, like all of a sudden opened up this door uh, for the band and they just walked right through it. And that's where Ocean Rain resided. Yep. 
Yeah, and I was gonna say, I, like I said, I was already a fan, but I remember buying this and putting it on, and the, and the first this first song, Silver, that we hear, and the strings immediately, and I remember they unsettled me a little. Like I'm thinking, oh, like what's going on here, you know? Uh, but it's a really, it's a joyful, optimistic sounding opener. Uh, so let's listen to the opening track, Silver. <laughs> My planet sweet on a silver salver Bailed out my worst fears Cause man has to be his own savior Blind sailors, imprisoned jailers God tamers, no one to blame us The sky is blue, my hands untied A world that's true through our clean eyes Just look at you with burning lips You live I'm wondering, like, how did you, what did you think when you first got this and your reaction when you started and you heard this song? Uh, honestly, Rob, I thought uh, I can play that and our band needs to play that. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. <laughs> I mean, but this simple version of it, right? Like you hear Will's opening chords. One of them is like, an, it's an open like E minor. I mean, it's, it's a really unusual chord, but pretty simple. And so to me, like when I hear Will coming up with that, like, very simple intro and that little arpeggiated thing that he does, which it sounds like, I'm pretty sure I read this, they fed his guitar, he had a Rickenbacker 12, they fed it through a Leslie cabinet, so it was like this spinning, rotating kind of cabinet in the middle of the studio where they were recording it. You can you can hear uh, like this world kind of unfolding to me, you know, and then Max sort of comes in with his existential, like, you know, Man has to be his own savior, and you know, he's, I, I, I swear to God, I still don't understand what my pan, my planet sweet on a silver salver. Still not sure. I totally rock what that oh, God. is. Oh God! Oh yeah, no, I know. Typically, I mean, his lyrics are are very dense in this, but I still feel like. Uh, you know, I feel like it doesn't matter. I, I know all the, just from listening to this album so much, I know all the words and I just love the, the sound, uh, blind sailors and prison jailers, yeah. God tamers, no one to blame us. It just sounds so beautiful. And that's, I guess some people gave him shit for, uh, for some of his lyrics that they're just, you know, um, existential, uh, gobbledygook, but I don't even, I don't care, you know? <laughs> No, I don't either. And, and I think what he's doing, uh, Rob, is he's actually, this really spoke to me in 84 because I was still a teenager. It was my transition from high school to college. So right. I could, I, you know, here's a, a group of guys, you know, you look at the, it's like where you can see the album cover and the music sounds like the album cover. So, you know, here's, here's Mac looking at his reflection in the water 
<laughs> wearing a raincoat, uh, which I probably had several of at that time. Um, you know, they they looked cool. They sounded really interesting. And Mac is taking you on this sort of quasi-spiritual journey. And like 18-year-old me was totally down for that. I bought my ticket. I was in. Oh, yeah, I was like, right, Whoa. right. All right. And then so after that really, really uh, light and positive-sounding opener, right away we get a gear shift. Uh, we get uh, things get darker with the second song. And yeah. the feeling and this vaguely sexual menace, which I don't know about you, but I feel like there's a lot of that permeating this whole album. I completely agree with you. It sounds like Mac has envisioned himself as sort of like your dark spiritual tour guide and that some of the more sexual references on the album relate to, I don't know if it was his wife, Lorraine, or, you know, relationships he'd had before then, but people in his life who were more innocent than he was. And so you can feel the layers kind of getting peeled off. And to me, Nocturnal Me is one where you, you definitely get a sense that he's He's trying to show you who he is, and maybe it's not that appetizing. Ah, uh, exactly. All right, listen to you. And I scrap fire. The strings in this one just add so much drama and make it so cinematic. I mean, it sounds like it could be the music could be like on a Doctor. What was that movie, Doctor Jivago? Oh, Doctor Jivago. Yeah. <laughs> Which Rob is totally appropriate because this song. The, the provisional name of it before they recorded it in Paris, which is where most of the record was recorded, was called The Russian One. And oh, okay. <laughs> the guy who arranged all the strings uh, on the record was a guy named Adam Peters. So they the, the way Ocean Rain went down was that The Killing Moon was recorded in the UK. And we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. And then the band decamped for Paris, where they had, you know, uh, a studio that was very BBC-like, kind of big and cavernous and cold, but big enough to fit a 35-piece orchestra. And so here's Adam Peters, this Brit, coming in and organizing, you know, a 35-piece French orchestra. And they don't understand him very well, and he doesn't understand them very well, and they're kind of hazing him on his first day. From my understanding, Nocturnal Me was the first song they did with the string section. Ah. and. The mic hit him in the head. He fell on the floor. They kind of <laughs> laughed at him. It's sort of a bad scene all the way around. But um, evidently, he kind of chastised them in French. So he actually did know some French enough to kind of give them shit for being poorly behaved. And subsequently, the orchestra applauded him at the end of this. I think they nailed it in only a couple of takes. And like, how hard is that to do? It's a complicated string arrangement. It's in waltz time, for God's sakes. It's six, eight time. Like th these are not easy songs to compose or arrange or play with that many people in a studio. And so 
this is a tour de force. You listen to this and, you know, to your point, it's the lyrics are dark. You know, Max talking about taking you internally. Who knows if he's talking about sex or drugs, but right, right. that's a very old sentiment either way. So uh, th- this is the one where, like you said, you you feel the gears shift and you know that this journey is going to be not all sunshine and light. You know, yes. there's some darkness. Yep, exactly. But then we kind of switch gears again because now we get sort of hopeful, like Ian's in love again, you know, <laughs> kind of hopeful with this next one. Uh, <laughs> we have, let's listen to a little bit of Crystal Days. <laughs> Sergeant, I mean, I know you mentioned Ray, but can we just talk a little about Will Sargent? <laughs> such a such a under he's such an understated rock star on this album because he uh, uh, like right here, as in so many other places on the record, he carefully chooses a spot to add this like noisy velvets like lead in between the strings, you know, and it's just so perfect and it's so like uh, you know it, it's so great, but he's so understated in how he does it, but then it, it ends up being like, it just it jumps out of you and it's perfect. Oh my God, I, Rob. I mean, like I, I have still ringing in my head, the singer from my college band telling me to play more like Will. <laughs> can, can you please play more like Will? Like that very understated, like <laughs> melodic and yet like a little freak out part over here. And, um, you know, he just did. And, and of course I'm never going to play like Will. I, I can't. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. I'm guessing you it's, never quite got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I believe me, it never did. Uh, and I've, I've told Will as much as well. But uh, it's, you know, the thing about this song that just blows my mind is, to me, the MVP of this record, the very understated MVP of it is the late Pete DeFreitas, the, the drummer for the band. You know, you hear he's, he's using brushes uh, because they're playing mostly acoustic instruments or electric instruments. They're sort of like turned down a bit and there's a string part behind them. So He's, he almost swings, you know, in a way. It's, oh, yeah. It's that, yeah. Weird, it's that weird thing that John Bonham did. You go back and listen to Zeppelin records and you're like, how the hell are these records swinging? And you realize it's because Bonham was that good. DeFreitas was that good. And in that breakdown section where Will is sort of freaking out with the velvets, you know, a feedback thing, Pete is back there banging the hell out of all these bongos with sticks. And so you get the, like, these weird crashes happening in this very noisy middle section. And it's, it's perfect for the song. It's never overplayed. It's never flashy. It's never people, again, doing guitar or drum athlete things. They're just 
playing the song the, the best way they know how, and it's just perfect. Yep, that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's how I feel, yeah, about this whole album. And all right, so now we get song number four, the Yo-Yo Man, which originally it was it was something else, right? Yeah, it was called Watch Out Below, which actually the band like a lot of bands back then, you know, if you if you were a band of a, a certain stripe, you were a Peel Session band. And so, you know, over the years, I think the Bunnymen did maybe three or four John Peel Sessions, uh, including in 83, where they were taking, you know, The Killing Moon, Nocturnal Me, this song, which at the time was Watch Out Below, Ocean Rain and My Kingdom were all still pretty embryonic being played at Maida Vale at the, the BBC uh, studio there. And you know, I'll be damned if... Most of the songs weren't already there in 83, but they got so much better by the time the band went to Paris and arranged them here. And I, I, this song to me is one of the examples of this one got a lot better, a lot better. Yeah. And let's listen to a little and then I'm going to I'm going to give you one um, reference that I hear like someone later on a later band that we all know that I feel like uh, the guitar player had to have been a big fan of Will. Uh, but let's listen to it first. More existential sounding dread in a bleak winter setting. Froze to the bone in my igloo home Counting the days till the eyes turns green You know when heaven and hell collide There are no in-betweens Flames on your skin of snow Turn cold, cold as the wind that blows my headstone Collecting the bones of my friends tonight Sowing the seeds in a fruitless land You know when prayers all hit the ground There is no higher hand Flames on your skin In between the verses, those simple, those single guitar. Think of the uh, Pixies. Think of Joey Santiago. Oh my God! Yeah, Joey Santiago. Of course. Yeah, he had he had to be a fan of Will Sargent's playing because you hear his future style in in the simple single single guitar notes that Will's playing in between these verses. Well, Ron, I'm so glad you mentioned it because Gil Norton didn't Gil produce the Pixies? Yes, he certainly did. So Gil Norton was hanging around these guys too, right? Yeah. Uh, I, oh yeah. I, uh, certainly, the, the next record, the so-called Gray album, would have been uh, a record that Gil was was all over. But uh, yeah, I certainly hear Pixies' influence. I mean, I think Rob, you can pick out a lot of bands that were listed. I mean, James Mercer from the Shins told me flat out there are songs that are entire Echo ripoffs. Oh, like nice, the first nice. Two records, and I just think there is this very understated mostly boys, fanboy massive, who were paying very close attention to this band and Will in particular, his way of playing. And so, yeah, why am I not surprised that Joey Santiago would have been one of those? And you know, the the Eastern influence to me is so interesting, Rob. Like I, look, 18 year old me did not understand what was going on here from a structural point of view, but there's a really interesting thing in music theory called um, parallel keys. And it's where you have people doing 
major key things and minor key things in the same tonic root note. And they kind of spin off of one another. And that's happening so much across this record where Will is playing something in a major key and maybe Ian is singing in a minor key or vice versa. And I, I just feel like these guys are the masters at like that weird juxtaposition of you go major and I'll go minor and I'll meet you at the end. It's, ah, it's spectacular. That's great. Uh, yeah, I love that. And also, oh, we didn't get to it, but I'm going to play it underneath. There's a bridge, a magnificent bridge that briefly takes you in a totally different direction in the song, a different like musical dream state and then drops you back into the song. Patreon episode recently where a couple of your guests talked about a tribute to Disney songs, you know, like sort of Disney done the adult way. Yep. And to me, that that bridge is sort of the perfect example of like, what if a Disney soundtrack was actually cool enough for adults? Because that's what it does <laughs> for me. Right. Uh, that's great. I love it. All right. Now this next one, Thorn of Crowns, I'm just going to say if, if someone were to pick apart the record as like a pseudo existential nonsense, this would probably be the song that they would pick on, you know, highlight most. I'm not of oh, that thing sure. at all. Cause I love this song, but right. Do you see what I'm saying though? Oh, a hundred percent. And look, you know, they, well, let's just go back in time for a sec. Humor me for just a sec. Like in 1983, 84, it's not like the doors are very cool. Right. It's not like people are sort of like, oh, Jim Morrison, you know, I think I'll go buy one of his 15 different tones of poetry or, you know, I better go back and listen to like Morrison Hotel or something like they're not a cool reference point. And yet Echo had already done a song on the debut record called Happy Death Men. It's a Doors song. Right. <laughs> it feels like a Doors song. And this song, Thorn of Crowns, to me is... You, you hear all the different influences that comprise the doors. You hear that Morrison thing that Ian is trying to do. You hear some of the uh, the, the Densmore and Robbie Krieger thing that, that's certainly between Pete doing drums and, and Ian doing guitar. It's in there. So it's, yeah, I mean, it sets them up as an easy target. And why do I love it so much anyway? Because oh, I do. I know. I don't give a fuck. I fucking love this song so much. Uh, let's listen to Thorn of Crown. Cabbage, c 
It's one of these songs that it's almost it's unfair just playing a snippet of it because you got to hear the whole goddamn song. But I, I, yeah, there's clearly some free word association going on here. But I think I really think Ian's also playing with the perception of himself as this doomy, gloomy, you know, p- a poet rocker who takes himself too seriously. And he's, you know, he's from Liverpool. So there's cheeky. You know, he knows all that and he's not an idiot. And I think he's playing with all that, you know, when he, when he does stuff like this. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, he, he's skilled enough and artistic enough to understand alliteration and how appealing it is and how you don't really have to have, as you've already said, a lot of meaning or sort of deeper theory attached to something. It just sounds really cool pinned up against what the band is playing. Um, but yeah, I think he's sending people up a little bit here and, you know, there's, there's a middle section, we're not gonna probably hear it or maybe you'll play it underneath, where there's a, a kind of a breakdown that happens. Um, and to me, you said you saw this uh, these guys on the tour, I did too, I saw them in Berkeley and they, they did this song. And there's some call and response that happens with uh, the audience. And um, you really do, I, I here's what I remember uh, from that, Rob. I remember seeing you two trying to do some similar things later like more around the joshua tree where they would intentionally fold like you know a dylan song or a rolling stone song oh yeah or right like right into one of their own and i do remember at the time the bunnyman doing that but this is 83 84 so it's it's years ahead and so when i when i read mac picking on bono later uh his his bet noir you know bono box I understand sort of where he's going with that because he's basically, he's just taking the piss in this song, but the fact that Bono latches onto it and turns it into like a core part of like the live U2 experience, I'm sure Ian was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what the hell are you actually doing? This you is knob. fun for us. <laughs> yeah, you're a knobhead. You're treating this like theater. What the fuck are you doing? That's great. Uh, but just uh, the music in this song is like thrilling. This is like one of the more band ones, and uh, we shouldn't, you know, the rhythm section we didn't, we haven't mentioned uh, on bass. Uh, Les Pattinson. Oh, Les Pattinson. Les Pattinson and Pete DeFridis. Uh, what are they're they're like going for it so much on the bass and drums, and then of course you got Will Sargent slaying on the guitar, and it's just such a like a thrilling band performance on this one. Oh, it's it's they were in my view one of the most underrated rhythm sections of not just that era, but probably any era. And again, it's like, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the album cover and I see the two of them standing side by side and I'm like, shit, here's another example of like, the cover tells you what you're gonna hear. You can hear the cover. Because those yes. two together, those two together are inseparable. They, they, they're the foundation of so many of these songs, including this one, which could fall apart, right? Like. There's just enough pretense here where if you didn't have a solid rhythm section, it, it wouldn't sustain and it wouldn't hold up. You would just, you'd look back on it and go, well, that's a skip track. I, I, could, I don't have to listen to that one. And I don't feel that way about it at all. 
Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, because it almost, I'm listening, I was listening to it again tonight for like the hundredth time, and it almost feels like, it's got a live feel, like it could be like live from a live show, the way they do, you know, they bring everything down with the dynamics and everything, and you know, we keep mentioning the cover, we should mention it was designed by Martin Atkins, who did like, uh, I think most of their covers, and the photography was Brian Griffin, and it's a picture yes. of a band in a rowing boat inside uh, Carnglaze Caverns in uh, Lixiered Cornwall, and it's just, yeah, you're yeah. right, I mean, this is the days when yeah the, the album cover tells you what's on the record perfectly well and, they, and they've been doing this for a while like if you go back to crocodiles it's an outdoor shot uh i think in southeast england of the band looking very dark and depressed and there's sort of weird psychedelic lighting on it the next one they're filmed you know on a or they're they're shot on a beach in wales looking at a sunset and and it feels like the music porcupine you know it's shot in iceland at like ice falls they, they look dangerous i think it was dangerous to shoot up there and it sounds as icy and difficult as the music and i um i just feel like that's an era rob that kind of passed but i i love sort of making that connection between the visual aspect of the band and the oral aspect of the band right all right, so now we flip it over. And I just real quick, I want to mention, I had, obviously I told you I, I, I bought this record when it came out. I had the album. I do not own it anymore. I gave it to, to my daughter, my older daughter, Corey. I gave her a lot of my records. I just gave them to her. And this is one particular band I don't think I ever discussed with her or did it, but I just remembered I was visiting her in California and she had it there and, and I saw it was there, like uh, there, she had been listening to it. And she said, this album's fucking great. This is like one of the greatest albums ever. And I was like so happy to hear her say that, you know, but with no, you know, no prodding from me, she loves this album as much as I did. So. I, I told my 23 year old that we were doing this podcast and he's like, that's one of my favorite records. Oh, yeah, that's like, great. Unprompted, unprompted. And it's, it's <laughs> amazing to think Rob, that even now when they're out touring, they're, they're touring the States right now. And, um, you know, on their recent leg, like when you look at the audience composition, uh, at their show, you realize there are people our age for sure, but there are young people in the audience. So again, the timelessness thing really resonates for me because, you know, look, if you're a kid and my kid are listening to this, either we're great parents or it's just great music. Uh, right? Yeah, well, probably more the great music, but whatever. <laughs> It <laughs> could be so much worse, right? Uh, all right. So now side two, we get the stunning centerpiece of the record. And according to Ian McCulloch, one of the greatest songs ever written. <laughs> Let's listen to, hey, I'm not going to argue with him. Let's listen to The Killing Moon. So cruelly you kissed me 
Your lips a magic world Your sky all hung with jewels The killing moon Will come too soon So, yeah, uh, to your point before, you said that Will Sargent said they'd been given those acoustic guitars by Washburn. So they definitely were all playing around with them. And that, uh, you know, uh, that's why there's so much uh, acoustic going on on this record. Uh, but also that Middle Eastern tinged the instrumentation, I guess he and Les Pattinson went to Russia, right, on uh, on a, a vacation. They had a little vacation uh, ahead of time. I think they went to uh, St. Petersburg and someplace evidently where nobody except Russians had been for like 30 or 40 years, which must've been hilarious. I mean, they were, they were bike riding friends. So when they toured, they would put these collapsible cycles, you know, on the bus or whatever, in whatever town they were in, they were just sort of riding around. So I think that's part of what the, uh, the Russia trip must've been, but yeah, you can, you can certainly hear it. It's uh, well, and here's what Will says. Uh, and, and I think Mac backs him up is that um, it's space oddity inverted. It's the first two chords to Space Oddity played wow. in reverse order. I, it, and it is. I'd read that, and then I, 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 I thought about it, and I said, oh, yeah, oh, okay, it basically is. But obviously, you know, you can't. there's no way you'd pick that out unless they told you that. No, and there's no way that you would come up with just this batshit crazy arrangement that you have of, you know, guitars that sound like a stone dropped in water and, you know, piano that sounds like it's being fed through... Uh, like sort of a super reverb kind of a thing. And the funny thing is like, so they recorded the whole record in Paris, except for this track. This track was actually conceived and uh, recorded in Bath. Uh, There's a a little studio at the Crescent in Bath. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I can actually kind of see where it was. They'd they'd been down at the pub and uh, came back from the pub and tried to put some of the ideas on there. I think they had most of the track finished before they got to Paris. I think they tried to record Mac's vocals over it in Paris. Failed. Maybe Mac was just having too good a time with the wine women. And yeah, he said, he said he had a cold, but it could have been that too. But well, whatever. He ended up, yeah, redoing them at this other studio. But uh, I mean, whatever he did, it worked because his vocals on this album are magnificent beginning to end. I mean, it's just... Uh, Sublime. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he's... He's part David Bowie. He's part Frank Sinatra. I mean, he's really, and he's all himself. He's all his own thing. And, uh, you know, look, there were there were lots of um, little bits and bobs of, of influence here, right? Like Scott Walker, you can tell that they're Scott Walker fans. But I mean, to me, the reason that any American knows about Echo and the Bunnymen is this song, right? I mean, this song has been used in, in movies. It was in Gross Point Blank. It was in Donnie Darko. Uh, it's it's the defining song and defining video, frankly, you know, from 1984, the one video that probably anybody ever saw uh, of the band. Like, this is the one. And I, I'm used to argue with Mac, right? Like, it probably is one of the greatest songs ever written. It just, and I don't even, I, you know, it, the lyrics, I don't even know, but it just sounds so magnificent that to me, it's like pointless to try and dig into the lyrics because they're just, in their placement and delivery, they're perfect. Yes. And, you know, you, you read stories about, like, Keith Richards bolting upright in bed at some ungodly hour and, you know, a riff falls out of the sky and he records it into a little handheld recorder, forgets about it, and then trips over it months later and is like, it was delivered 
from God. And what Mac has said is that, you know, he and his, his now ex-wife, Lorraine, it was in their first house. He sat up in bed and the words to the entire chorus were, were already there, like he had them in, the, in a dream. Fate up against your will, through the thick and thin, you will wait until you give yourself to him. That in its entirety was already written. And so, you know, he kind of dutifully scribbles it down. And so he, he told journalists at the time, God should get a songwriting credit because it felt <laughs> like it was mine. I grabbed I the guitar that. and I worked out the rest. That's just like how it works. That's I guess. great. <laughs> All right. Uh, so things uh, brighten up again. They, they brighten up with these really like adventurous sounding another sea themed uh, ditty. Uh, to me, it's about like uh, optimism. There's a lot of it's funny as gloomy as the album is. There's a lot of optimism on it, too, I feel. And uh, this one definitely feels like that. Uh, let's listen to a little of Seven Seas. Sorry heart With your favorite finger Paint the whole world blue And stop your tears from stinging Hear the cavemen singing Good news they're bringing Seven seas Swimming them so sense in stealing without the grace to be it again as far as the lyrics i'm i'm pretty much clueless on what they're about but some of my favorite lyrics on this whole record uh stab a sorry heart with your favorite finger paint the whole world blue and stop your tears from stinging hear the cavemen singing good news they're bringing it's like i don't know it's just so it sounds so good you know well yeah and the caveman thing i mean that's back to the bowie reference i'm pretty sure that that's like a allusion to uh you know the mars track obviously where bowie talks about uh life on mars where he talks about the cavemen but um right. to me like when i listen to um interviews at the time and will is talking about like what's on their listening list the thing that's at the top of their list at that moment is love's forever changes and when i when i hear this song i think oh it's ann morgan it, that's actually this exact chord change it's c major seven oh wow that, that 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 first chord you hear, go back and listen to it. I mean, I've heard your podcast about it too, but like, you know, to me, this is absolutely Love's Forever Changes with Mac doing a, a killer job. I mean, to your point, the uh, the lyrics are just unbelievable. And, you know, it does, um, to me, sort of re-emphasize the nature of this record as a, a classic water album. You know, you got oceans, rain, tidal waves, seven seas, water games, like ice. It's it's all there. And when I think about like, you know, what, I don't know, what in literature does water stand for? You know, often, uh, well, like in Moby Dick, it was an unpredictable journey. Uh, the old man in the sea, it was rebirth. You know, I feel like they're touching all those classic 
themes of what water stands for. And you're right. This is, you know, for a group that was supposedly so gloomy and tied to the gothy side of post-punk, th- this is as bright a star as you're going to listen to. This is, you know, fresher feeling. How do you get any more upbeat or optimistic than that? So, right. yeah, this is uh, this is definitely light in the darkness to me. Hope is what this song is. Yep, exactly. All right, and now we get the second to last track. It starts very wistful sounding, and maybe it's about an argument or a misunderstanding, I'm thinking. That's, uh, but uh, I, I, again, I love this song, and there's some great musical stuff we got to talk about, but let's listen to a little bit of My Kingdom. Right there was a, how could I not <laughs> let it go? Even though it's fading out, I'll, I'll bring it up in there to play. Yeah, it's just the song. It's just catapulted into the stratosphere uh, by Will Sargent's amazing solo. Which and here's the thing: like you try to replicate it, right? And then you realize that what he was doing, and I get this is just a classic studio story. It's one of these Washburn acoustic guitars fed through yes. a Blaupunk radio, a radio, right? Fed through the radio. That's that's his amp. Is this radio? In fact, I think he was on Tim Burgess's uh, thing, the listening party, and uh, he was posting some photos on Twitter of the equipment that they were using at the time. And it's this shitty old radio that he plays it through. Rob, it is the best guitar solo I think of the mid '80s. It oh, is. It's uh, top five for me. Top good. five ever. I get goosebumps every time I listen to it. And then he he brings it in again in the outro. The outro of the song. He comes in again with it, and it's just yeah. It's it's just so beautiful and so perfect. And it's like, oh my god, I, I love it so much. This this to me is the best song on a record full of best songs. Uh, and there's a couple of things I really love about it. One is is that uh, Will Will claims that. Uh, Loves a House is Not uh, a Motel was the uh, musical inspiration for the song. So when he was 
assembling it, that was what was playing in the background. Oh, and wow. um, and when I think about Liverpool, the thing that's interesting about it is, is that there was a lot of Irish immigration there over the years, right? So it's it's a Catholic city. It's not an Anglican city. And so when I when I look at these lyrics, and you know you you hear uh, Ian talking or singing about Thy will be done, and you know My kingdom, Your kingdom, like there's there's some definite Catholic influence kind of coursing through this, even if he's forsaken God or you know any semblance of organized religion in his life. And you know how great is the the line? If my heart is a war, its soldiers are bleeding. If my heart is a war, its soldiers are dead. Oh, like that. Yes. That that is unbelievably great songwriting. That like it's just unfreaking touchable. So yeah, to me, this is the top of Bunny Mountain right here. Yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, such a great album, and I feel like I, I feel the same way. There's not a, a, any weak songs on it. It's beautiful, but it's almost like the second side. It just keeps elevating the album. It never stops. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, it never stops. It does never stop. That's true. I had never bothered until I did the research for this podcast. At the very end of the song, maybe you'll play it underneath, like the very end, like you said, where his guitar is sort of doing the same thing a second time around. You read those lyrics, holy Christ, you're a bitter, maligned person, and the death is well overdue. <laughs> you're a bitter, maligned person, and your death is well overdue. While somebody else, probably another version of Ian on Overdub, is singing King of Pain, only without the cringy sting overtones of King of Pain. It's, I've never paid any attention to that. I'm like, how does a song go from, like, so Catholic and, you know, trying to come to grips with things to just a, a Bob Dylan-like, you know, cut slash and burn episode with someone someone he really did not like ended up at the end of this song wow you know that's amazing i swear to god i've listened to this so long but i think i'm so focused on will's guitar at the end that i never even noticed that i'm gonna have to listen to that again and pay attention to what they're saying there i never noticed that that's great all right so now we get the closing epic ballad uh which uses uh nautical and meteorological terms as metaphors right for the internal struggles of someone maybe caught in a toxic relationships which maybe is the whole theme of the whole album maybe right it could very well be in fact just that um sugar and salt that we were talking about before major and minor chords you know the light and the dark all of it you know like i i feel like you're onto something there because even if it's not a quote unquote concept record, you because so many of us can't put it down, you listen to it from start to stop, you, you emerge from it thinking, like you said, it's a dark side of the moon or something like that. And that that struggle, the heart's struggle to come to grips with the relationships in your life and that they have both bitter and sweet elements to them feels like that's the underpinning for the whole thing. And this song really caps it off that way. Yep. Title track, Ocean Rain. Oh, see again, now my hurricanes brought down this ocean rain to bathe me again. My ships to sail, can you hear its tender frame? Screaming from beneath the waves Screaming from beneath the waves All hands 
Hands on Deckard Dome Sailing to Cider Shores Your port in my heavy storms Harbors the blackest thoughts Again, you get those simple Will Sargent, this, those guitar parts that he comes in with are just like so simple and so perfect. Um, so yeah, like we were saying, what is it? Like water as a metaphor for like love and sex and, and life, right? Yeah, I mean, Maybe. to me, there's this like calm center where the band resides, you know, almost like triumphantly. And then there's Max screaming from beneath the waves, right? And, and the contrast is just like shocking, you know? It's this mix of light and dark. You get like waves and then silence. It's, it's almost like drowning. And I've read interviews where Mac has said that like he wants to die singing this song, like making it an offering to the ocean. And there's probably, Rob, we could go on and on on this. There's probably where this song sits in the history of sea shanties, right? I would say this is probably like shanty adjacent maybe or right. something like that but you know it's it's exactly what you said it's the bunnyman trick it's a two chord pony it's an a and a d and then here come the vocals in e minor and it's just this you got your major and i got my minor and we'll we'll meet at the end of the song and um i think a lot about uh not to make this a podcast about spoon but a brit from spoon has told me that it was a strategy of his for many years to save the best, most thematic song for the end of the album. And I feel like that's what Ocean Rain, I mean, obviously it's the title track to the album, but I also feel like, is there a better closing track in 80s rock? Because I can't think of one. It's oh yeah, perfect. because it's got this melancholic feel, but then it's also got this, it feels like uplifting, but then tragic feeling in a way. And then it just like, it just like builds. And yeah, yeah, like you said, and, and the band is there at the center, even though, you know, the, the, you've got the orchestra and you've got the band and it's just like perfect. But again, like I was saying before, I feel like you have to be all, you just have to listen and enjoy it. This the same way I could listen to like Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell and enjoy it unironically and enjoy not that i'm comparing now they're completely different animals but you know it's the same thing for me i could listen to it at and just be all in and enjoy it and not worry about how corny some of it is or any of that you know no i i completely agree and you know you started the podcast where it feels appropriate to sort of put a pin in it at the end right like this like you this for me is it's a top five all-time record so like it can stand proudly beside, you know, Forever Changes, Blonde on Blonde, uh, Exile on Main Street, If I Want to Go Hip Hop, Illmatic, like records that I, I can't just like pick around at. I, I literally listen to them start to finish. And so, you know, Meatloaf or any other record that people have historically come to and they're like, I, I just got to park myself for an hour so I can get through this thing from the beginning to the end. <laughs> is, is right. Intended to be heard like... To me, that's this this record. You know, it's just music that's so good, and it's built on the things you already love. Um, you know, television, the Velvets, the Doors, and, and yet utterly its own, and it just stops you in its tracks. And so, you you this is an emotional song. You get to the end of this, and you're like, 
I, you know, like Mac, I wouldn't mind them playing this at my funeral. You know, oh this my is, god, this yeah. When he comes in at the end with that, he he like purposely sings the a, a, a little lower, like uh, he goes an octave lower in the verse, and then just bursts out with it. Uh, you know, what you know, he's got this baritone voice, so he's up at the top of his range at the end. And just oh, it's so yeah. emotional and cathartic. You know, it's, it's beautiful music, and I think that if you like we already talked about, you know, if you thought about their punk roots, where they came from, and then you, you know, fast forward five years to 1984, and you, you hear what they're up to, the 35-piece orchestra in Paris, and just the the nature of the compositions, you know, it's, it's like nothing, I, I can't imagine, like, Joy Division, even after they had turned into New Order, getting to this place in their trajectory right i can't imagine the cure for as great as that band is getting to this place in its trajectory you know it's just a it is a once in a lifetime singular achievement yes yeah and they could never do it again right like as it turns out it took them three years to make their next record it wasn't that great it sounded like a band on cocaine which it was uh you know it it produced hits in america but ultimately was the end of the band so you can feel that this is their lasting achievement this is their you know document to rock and roll and uh, it's what makes it so indelible it's why we're talking about it for an hour yeah god everyone should be every musician should be so lucky to have this to be something like their pinnacle something like this Corey, i appreciate it so much so Corey, i don't know do you have anything you want to promote you want to send anyone anywhere anywhere You know what I want? Yeah, so let's send you on a cruise, Rob. We're going to yeah, change yeah. your life. We're going to take you on a cruise. I don't know. Um, one thing I would like to say is that uh, a, another guest on your show, the guy who introduced me here, Tim Heinle, uh, he, he may have already plugged this, but I'll do it for him again. Uh, he got me involved in your show, and of course, he, he put together this sort of crowdsourced document of venues gone by called Where the, the Wild Gigs Were. Uh, and there is Another edition of Where the Wild Gigs Were that is in progress right now, part two, and I think it promises to be every bit as revealing and interesting as part one was. And so uh, your your listeners should be on the lookout for that. If they enjoyed Tim's work the first time around, I think this, this second time will be even more sort of like stories from the American underground and interesting stuff. And I look, Rob, I should... And it's just by thanking you for uh, this labor of love that uh, you put together. You know, I, I, I can't imagine, probably couldn't have imagined going into the pandemic, spending an hour on the legendary Pink Dots, but but I do because of you. And so there we are. I oh, think nice. Podcast, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. It's great you mentioned Tim because I don't I guess you don't realize Tim's uh, episode, your episode is going to come immediately after Tim. Tim just did an episode and we, we talked about a little briefly about the next edition of that. So that's perfect. You're going to come right after I Tim. Have, I had no idea. Well, you'll yeah. get two plugs in a row then for sure. But uh, awesome. thanks for having me on and thanks for caring that much about this record, which I have cared about since it first appeared in 1984. As, as my beat-up copy of it sitting right here in front of me would tell you, uh, Rob. I know, so good. All right, don't forget, everyone, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. It's at That Record Got Me High. Also, that Facebook group got me high on Twitter. It's at TRGMH Podcast. You can email me at TRGMH33 at gmail.com. And most important, if you want to become a patron of the show, participate in our patron episode. How much fun, uh, uh, Corey, how much fun was this last uh, patron episode we did? The, the work yeah, songs it was, one. It was the best one. Uh, the theme was, you know, the idea of work songs. I mean, they're 
as old as the blues, as old as time. It was eclectic and interesting and funny. And yeah, it's uh, it's a tribute to your listeners. Actually. Yeah, yeah, you, they're the best. So you could uh, get on board with that. Go to patreon.com forward slash TRJMH. Become a patron of the show. I'd appreciate it. Corey, thanks again. Uh, once again, it was great having you on. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you all next week. I'm Rob Elba. We're out of here. Vagabond is wrapping at your door. Is standing in the clothes you once wore. Striking the match go star.